<laughs> is that new? Does that alarm anyone? Uh, but here we are today, and I couldn't help but think how ugly the weather was today, but how absolutely gorgeous it was for three Sundays in a row, which just happened to be the three Sundays that three of our campuses had Outdoor Friends Day. Uh, you know, it was just marvelous. I don't know when we've had three perfect Sundays in a row, but we had first here in Beaumont, then in Needleton, and then in Sugarland, perfect days. And so uh, I may, it was saving up. That's what it was. It was like saving up, and today we get it all. So anyway, it's great to be with you all. I always look forward to worshiping with you and want to share the word with you here in a moment. I'd like to uh, congratulate um, uh, Elder Mark Moe. I don't know if you heard this or not, but he and Faith have been sleeping together every night, like every night. And the backstory is he's been working shift work their whole marriage, uh, 12-hour shifts, long, long, long um, um, shutdowns, and he retired. And... Uh, They've been spending 24-7 together, having fun. It's starting to concern me, actually. <laughs> but uh, anyway, congratulations, Mark. I love you so much. Last night, we had a, a real uh, uh, retirement party for him. Many of you were there. And um, we're buying him a new set of golf clubs. Uh, what a fitting thing for a golfer to retire and get a brand new set of clubs. And uh, so we're all kind of pitching in and contributing. So if you uh, see him, just give him a Pentecostal handshake. You know what that is? Okay. A Pentecostal handshake is when you put some money in your palm and you shake their hand. And when you come back, they've got the money. <laughs> That's called a Pentecostal handshake. So uh, give Mark a Pentecostal handshake and congratulate him on his retirement. What was it, Mark? Was it 39 or 40 years? 39 years. Wow, that's a long, long time. Congratulations. Pastor Rennan and I have been sharing in a series called Better. I've heard so many good things about uh, what you've already heard today. I would like to talk to you about a uh, better finish, a better finish. Guys, hit my countdown clock up there somewhere so I can see, okay? You know, Jesus came to make our lives better. I, I remember growing up hearing my pastor say, the very least your religion ought to do is to make you happy. And uh, truly, my religion is making me happy. And we have a good news gospel, not a bad news gospel, but a good news gospel. Uh, and the good news is your life now and your life in eternity is going to be much better through Jesus Christ. In the book of John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, the thief, that means the devil, comes to steal, kill, destroy, and wreck your life. But he said, I have come that you might, for this purpose, to give you a rich and satisfying life. Everybody say, rich and satisfying. How many of you want a rich and satisfying life? Rich and satisfying life. 
That's what Jesus came to do, and don't let the devil cross you up on that. The very happiest way to live is for Jesus. The devil will offer a lot of shiny things, but they're, they don't, they're not true, and they don't take you to a place of happiness. But Jesus will take you to a rich and a satisfying life. But we have to live our lives from the future to the present. We have to ask ourselves, where does God want me to be, and where do I want to be at the end of my life? Where do I, where do I want to be in five years? Where do I want to be in ten years? And when do I, where do I want to be at the end of my career? And then you live back from that point. You live back from that point. And when young people are, are struggling after high school to decide what career to take, they struggle because they don't know where they want to be at the end of their lives. You have to have an idea of where you want to be and then work backward from that. I believe this is a prophetic model of life management, seeing into the future and then working back to your present. You see, life is a journey. We are in perpetual motion. And every day that we live and every breath that we breathe, it, we're on a journey and we're moving forward. And the journey never stops. Even when we feel like life isn't going anywhere, it's still going somewhere. It's passing, the clock's ticking, your heart's beating, and your life is passing every single second. And so we have to realize we always have to be in the driver's seat. You know, it seems like sometimes people go into a, a stationary mode, kind of go brain dead when it comes to driving their lives, and they forget they're driving. They forget that they're, they're at the steering wheel of their lives. And pretty soon their life is just drifting because they've stopped to drive the vehicle of life. You know, we're all in a, in a sense of motion, in a state of motion, without realizing it. We're all in an enormous state of motion. For instance, you may feel right now that you're sitting still, but it's an illusion of miraculous proportions because planet Earth is spinning around its axis at a speed of 1,000 miles per hour. Do you realize that you and I right now, sitting comfortably on those chairs, you are traveling 1,000 miles an hour, and yet you don't realize it. We read just a little further. Every 24 hours, planet Earth pulls off a, cel a celestial 360. We're all hurtling through space at an average velocity of 67,100 miles per hour. Yes, you heard me right. We are traveling 67 and 108,000 miles per hour. That's just fast, faster than a, that's not just faster than a speeding bullet. It's 87 times faster than a speeding bullet. So even on a day when you feel like you didn't get much done, don't forget that you did travel 1,599,793,000 miles through space. To top it off, not only are we on a planet that is spinning and revolving around the sun, we're a part of the Milky Way. And guess what? The Milky Way is a spinning like a galactic pinwheel at the dizzying space of 483,000 miles per hour. 
And sometimes we think, my life is not going anywhere. <laughs> the fact is, we are always going somewhere. And just like we're sitting here and traveling at this enormous rate of speed through space, we can't sense it. We don't feel it. We don't even know it. We're just sitting here like everything is still. And that's the way our lives are. We can get up and go through our routines of life and not really be cognizant that we are moving and life is a journey. And every day we're on that journey. And we must be cognizant that we are at the wheel of life every single day, every single minute. If you were speeding down the freeway at 70 miles an hour, would you suddenly let go of the steering wheel and turn around and talk to the person behind you? No, you're driving. You're going fast. So you have to pay attention and you have to drive. The fact is, that's the way our lives are. We have to be driving our lives because they're in perpetual motion. And we have to be at the steering wheel at all times because life is a journey. You know, you'd never get in an automobile and sit down as a passenger if there some was, wasn't someone behind the wheel. If the car was speeding down the, the, the road and there was no driver and you were a passenger, you'd be looking for a place to get out quick. And neither would you want to ride in a vehicle that did not know where it was going. You always have the sense that I, you want the person driving to know where they're going and how to get there. You know, Renee and I went to see Damon and Christine Scapin in uh, D.C. here a couple of weeks ago. And so they're picking us up and carrying us from the hotel to the church and different places we're going through for three or four days there. And I noticed that everybody was using their GPS to get me from the hotel to the, G to the church where we rent. And I'm like, how long have y'all been living here? Do you have to use your GPS every time to tell you where to turn right in 500 yards? And everybody that picked me up, and they carried me anywhere, anywhere it was, didn't matter long or short, they all had their GPSs on, and every few seconds it would say, turn right, stop, go forward, turn left. I'm like, does anybody that drives me in this city really know where we are? I mean, if, if, if the battery dies in that thing, what, are, will I be lost? The fact is, you want to go with somebody that knows where they're going. You want to know that whoever's driving knows where, they're, where they want to end up and how to get there. And so many people are going through life and not really knowing where they want to be and how to get there. Before you ever start the journey, know where you want to go and know how to get there. And then you have a good chance of a better finish. Otherwise, it's a disaster in the making. You see, at the end of my life, I want to arrive. At the end of my life, I want to arrive safe, sound, and having been significant. Safe and sound and having been significant. Jesus had the finish in mind throughout his whole life. Early in the ministry of Jesus, we hear him say to the disciples in John chapter 4, verse 34, he simply said to them, my meat is to do the will of the Father. In other words, my, my assignment, my nourishment, what I'm supposed to be about is doing the will of God who sent me and finishing his work, finishing 
his work. So from the very onset, Jesus knew why he came. He knew what his life was about. He knew where he was going, and he was set on finishing that assignment. When I was a small boy, and you've heard me tell the story, uh, just um, four and a half or five years old, one of my earliest memories, I was sitting in our little Pentecostal church down in Nederland. Uh, my pastor was behind the, behind the pulpit. I was sitting with my folks. And in that moment, while I was holding in my lap a little red Pentecostal praises hymnal, uh, the Lord visited me as a small boy and called me to be your pastor and to serve him in the way that I am. And that was a huge benefit for me because there's never been a time in my recollection when I didn't know why I was born, what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't know where I was going, where I was supposed to go. And that's a huge advantage. The earlier in life a young person can find out what their life is about and what they're supposed to be doing, the more of an advantage it is. It was a buoy and a guide, a roadmap for me throughout my whole life, and I'm still on track today. I know what I'm called to, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm moving forward in it. And God will reveal to each of us what our road in life is and what our purposes are, and He will give us our assignment. Now, at the age of four and a half, I didn't get the whole picture, but I got the general direction, I got the end, the end. And so throughout my growing up years, it was like the pieces of a puzzle oddly shaped with obscure pictures on the front uh, that slowly began to come together. And all of us here at different ages, and we still have pieces of the puzzle coming into position. Young people have a very small part of the puzzle put together, but they have some pieces that are connected. When you're in your 30s and 40s, the, there should be enough pieces put together to see what the puzzle's going to look like when you're finished. But let me tell you something, when you're in the last quarter of your game, there will still be pieces coming together that will be wonderfully surprising as God completes the picture and the assignment of life. If we will seek God, He will speak to us and He will give us the direction that we need. And when Jesus went to the cross, one of the last things he says was, it is finished. It didn't mean that his existence wasn't finished, his ministry was finished. It just means that that phase was finished. He said, I came here to do a job. I got the job done. It's finished. I'm going back to my Father. And there is a few more wonderful uh, feelings in life than to know that you started something and finished it that you dreamed a dream, and that you made a plan, and you worked hard, and you paid the price, and now the plan has become a reality. It is finished. Of course, three days later, he came back to life and ascended to the Father where he received the kingdom. And even though he died in a horrible, painful, torturous death, there was something greater in store for him. He paid the price and he finished the assignment and received the reward that his father had for him. There's a price to be paid. There's a cross to be borne. But if we will bear our cross, Jesus has promised us a glorious, glorious crown. You see, people that waste their lives on uh, illicit sex and uh, illegal drugs, 
waste their life and do not educate and train themselves and apply their skills and abilities and they just go through existence and they accept the least, the meager, the, 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 little, the less they can get by with. They're wasting their life. They don't realize that God has a, a bigger, better plan. They've never got on track with God. And you can just wander through life and wonder where you're going and what you're doing and just trying to make sure you've got food and clothes and shelter and a, a decent family relationship and never realize that even as wonderful as those things are, there's something beyond that that's called significance, that's called divine assignment that makes your life complete and really finishes it. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul gave us a formula for a better finish, a better finish. He's at the end of his life. He has already been incarcerated by the Roman government. He is in a, 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 a cell, a prison cell, and he knows that his life has come to an end. And he knows that at any moment, whether it be that day or the next, they're going to come like they had to many other of God's men in that day, and they're going to sever his head from his body, and his life will be over. And so he is facing the end at any moment, and this is what he said. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. So the first thing we see is Paul saw his life as an offering. Two words that go together in the Bible is the word sacrifice and the word offering. These are primarily the same. A sacrifice was an animal that you would bring to the Lord and slaughter that animal and offer it to the Lord as an offering. It was a sacrifice. And so Paul said, my whole life is an offering. It is something that I have given to God. It is something that belongs to God. It is His. I believe the key to a better finish is what Paul refers to here as his life being an offering. If you want to finish well, then make sure that you've given your life as an offering. You know, I've had a wonderful life, and I, I wouldn't want to have ever lived another life or live another future that is ahead of me. Thank God for my life. But you know, I can't tell you that there haven't been other things I would like to have done, other places I would like to have gone, place people, places I'd like to have lived. And I mean, everybody knows there's like other avenues you could have taken. But when your life is an offering, you're doing God's will. And you may not get to live in the city you want to live in. You may not get to work at the job you really want to work at. You may not have everything you want, but it doesn't matter because my life is an offering unto God. Now, I believe that God will give us the desires of our heart. I believe that God will take me to the happiest place that I could possibly be in life. But at the same time, I realize that we don't make all the choices and we don't get to choose everything about our life. Our life is an offering. When you come to Jesus Christ and give your heart to Him and you ask Him to come into your heart, it isn't just fire insurance. It is literally a sacrifice where you lay your whole life on the line and say, Father, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll make any sacrifice you want me to make. I'll, I'll, I'll suffer anything you want me to suffer. I'll challenge anything you want me to challenge. I'll tackle anything you want me to tackle. That's what salvation really is. 
And one of the things that grieves me deeply about the modern Christianity is we have so watered down our salvation experience till there's virtually nothing left. It's just one more self-help, self-improvement message. And there's no real offering in it. When people get saved, you become a sacrifice. You climb up on the altar. You lay down and say, Father, take my life. It's yours from this point on. He saw his life as an offering. Let's read just a little further. He said, I have fought a good fight. You don't have to live very long to realize that it's a fight. That you're in the fight of your life. And you have to fight every day and you have to fight hard. And you have to fight enemies from within and enemies from out. And you have to fight friend and foe. And you fight everything because it's a fight. I don't know what to say. He said, I have fought a good fight. He didn't say he won every round. He didn't say he annihilated his opponent. He just said, I fought a good fight. And that's what I got to tell you today. I hadn't won every battle. I hadn't annihilated every foe. I'm not the, I'm not the invincible one. But I have fought a good fight. I'm proud of my, my performance. I'm proud that I gave it my best. And win or lose or somewhere in between, I fought a good fight. How many of you are fighting a good fight? Then he said, I've finished the race. And that word race is marathon. It's not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. You have to go about a marathon a little different than a dash. A dash is just... Run as quick and fast as you can, and it's over with. But a marathon is pace yourself. A marathon is endurance, top physical condition. And he said it's a race. And you and I are in a race, and we have to be in top physical condition. And we have to race according to the rules, not our own rules. And we have to give it all we've got because we're in a race. It's a marathon. And he said, I have finished the race. You know, the great thing about marathon is just finishing. I've got a number of marathons and uh, runners that I'm friends with. And I was talking to a lady uh, in the Sugarland Church the other day. And she's got a big marathon coming up, a 26-mile marathon coming up. And, uh, you, you know, I asked her, well, how do you think you're going to do? She said, well, I just want to finish. She's not kidding herself. She, she's not a world-class world athlete. She knows that she's probably not going to win the race. They come from all over the world to, to run in that Houston Marathon. And, and she said, I just want to finish. You know, here, here's a lady that had already, uh, already understood what it meant to finish. I don't have to be the fastest. I just want to finish. I don't have to get there first. I just want to finish. Because in this race of life, it's not about competition of beating someone else and being bigger and better. It's just about finishing your race and doing what God called you to do. You know, I propose to you that one man may do great and obviously uh, marvelous things for God, and another may not. But if they both have done God's will and they both have ran their race well, and they fought hard, and they gave it all they've got, and they each finished their assignment, though one assignment may have been bigger and more glorious and another lesser, God gives them the same reward. Because you reward are rewarded because you finish your assignment, not because your assignment is greater or less than someone else. Think about that. So he said, I fought a good fight, I finished the course. And then what did he say? I have remained faithful. 
I have remained faithful. Remain faithful. Uh, <clears throat> it's the long haul that gets you. It's the day after day, year after year, the hell of life, the problems, the disappointments, the confusion, the unexpected. He said, uh, you know, I've remained faithful. I admire people that live for God their whole lives, that start out as a child of God and they don't quit. They go through all kind of crap and it don't matter. They just keep living for God. You know what I'm talking about? Have you been through any crap? Yeah, yeah. Just faithful. Make mistakes, still be faithful. Get sin in their life, still be faithful. Have failures, still be faithful. Disappointments, still be faithful. Go through all kind of stuff. Just love God and connected to God. I believe the essence of salvation is being connected to God. It's not about a perfect life. It's not about not doing things wrong. As much as it is just being connected to God. Faithful. Then what did he say? And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness. Wow. Everybody's got to plow in hope, the Bible says. Plow in hope. Everybody's got to run their race in hope. Everybody's got to live their life in hope. You've got to see that there's a crown waiting for me. There, there's something at the end of all of this. There's some reward that's going to make it all worth it. And you've got to keep your eye on the reward. And the reward is a crown of righteousness. When you and I breathe our last, it isn't over. It's really only just begun. Because we'll receive the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. Not only will I get a crown, but I'm going to receive the crown from the Lord Jesus himself. You know, a few years ago, you and I participated in, in helping our community in, uh, in uh, hurricane relief. Most of you were there and remember that in 2005 and in 2008. And um, what, a, what a wonderful and terrible uh, season of life that was. At the end of that, uh, you and I were recognized for our efforts during that time, invited to the White House. And when the President of the United States gave me that award and all of your behalf, it was a pretty, pretty big moment. I mean, when the President gives you an award, and, and there were 19 of us awarded around the Gulf Coast for that season, and uh, one of 19, I, I mean, yeah, it felt pretty good. But how microscopic that is compared to what it's going to be like when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords goes like this. <laughs> Everybody's got to have hope. You've got to see the victory. You've got to see the crown. You've got to see the end. And you've got to live with that moment in your heart. That's what gives you the strength to go on and strength to continue. Paul had that in his heart, and it kept him going forward. It was a secret of a better finish, seeing the Lord. Let me read that last verse, and we'll be done with this. Who will give me on the day of his return and the prize is not just for me, but all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Paul had an, an anticipation, an expectation that he looked eagerly toward, eagerly toward.
We have to look eagerly toward meeting our Savior, receiving our crown, and live with that sense of expectation uh, and uh, thoughtfulness. You know, I'm living for the future. I'm living for eternity. And what I have to do, what I do today is directly connected with my eternity. And this is what the Bible teaches. I want to move a little further and talk to you about some other great characters of the Bible, then I'll be finished. Remember Joseph? If you read the book of Genesis, much of Genesis is about the life story of Joseph, and it's, it's truly one of the epic stories and events in the history of the human race, especially uh, for you and I as Christians. Joseph, he was a favorite son, the youngest of his father. He was uh, resented and hated by his older brother. So his brothers captured him, put him in a pit, and was planning on killing him. But one of the brothers talked him out of it and said, no, let's just sell him into slavery. So they sold him into slavery. So he was a slave. And he landed in the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar raised him up and made him a steward of his house. Potiphar's wife liked him, tried to seduce him. He refused to be seduced. She falsely accused him. Potiphar put him in jail. So he went from the pit to the steward of Potiphar's house, and now he's in jail. But after having been in jail for a while, he began to rise to the top and he became the steward of the whole prison. He had been like the warden. And then while he was in the prison, there were two men that the king had put into prison. He would befriended them. And ultimately, one of those men would be killed and the other would be returned to the palace. And at a critical moment in history of the um, Egyptian nation and the life of Joseph, he remembered that Joseph could interpret dreams, and so he called him out of prison. Joseph interpreted Potiphar, uh, the Pharaoh's dream, and as a result, Joseph was taken out of the prison and made the prime minister of all of Egypt. What a, what a wonderful and powerful, powerful story. He went from the pit to the palace. In terms of personal achievement, can you imagine what it would be like to start off in a pit and end up a slave, and then before, before a few years was gone, he was the prime minister. You're talking about personal achievement. He went from the pit all the way to the palace. I would call that personal achievement. We have many stories here in our country of people that started in the poorest, uneducated, most difficult environment, but have achieved great things, personal achievement. He was estranged from his family carried into a foreign land. So he was isolated, he was separated, different culture, different people, different everything. But in the course of that event, in the course of his life, God brought his brothers and his fathers to Egypt and he was beautifully reconciled. And we have a great story where he's weeping and crying because he's so glad to see his family again. God reconciled his family. And then we see at the end, not only to become the prime minister, but he also preserved God's people, his family, alive. He preserved them during the famine, and he gave them the land of Goshen, which was a rich and fertile land where they could live in plenty, even though the rest of the world was in famine. And so he achieved his assignment. He had gone ahead of them into Egypt to make a place for them, so when it came time to preserve God's people, he would be in a position to preserve the people of God, his family, and to continue the plan of God uh, in his generation. So there's no greater story of, of a better finish than Joseph. Uh, he, he finished well and did the will of God in his lifetime. But you know, Joseph was, had a personal culture that was a key to his success. 
And even though he was a slave, and then he was a prisoner, then he was a prime minister, um, he had his own culture. He was living in Egypt, and he no doubt became a part of Egypt, but he always had a personal culture that was a buoyant force in his life. And when the devil would push him down, inevitably he would come back up. He would come back up because of the grace of God on his life. Remember, the grace on your life is a buoyant force, and the devil may push you down, but you're coming back up because grace is a buoyant force. He had a personal culture. He had personal standards and personal uh, uh, lines that he would never cross. And when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, uh, she, he, he, he resisted that because it was beneath him. It was a line he wouldn't cross. His personal culture held him up strong. And when he was in prison, he could have been buried there. He could have been violent. He could have been hateful. He could have been unforgiving. He could have gone the other way. He could have become like all the other prisoners. But in his heart, he knew, I'm not a prisoner. I'm not a criminal. I shouldn't even be here. And he maintained his personal culture. And it was that culture that opened the door for his future. I believe it's important that you and I take responsibility for our life and that we create a very strong personal culture. I can't blame anyone for my personal culture. I can't blame my wife, my family. I can't blame my environment in any way. But I'm responsible for my own personal culture. You know, um, um, there's a great article that came out in Dave Ramsey's uh, website that talks about the habits of wealthy, successful people, just the daily habits. And I'm going to tell you before I read these that I'm not telling you to go out and do these. You may want to, but I'm sort of my point is. My point is that when you study people that are wealthy and famous, they have common habits. They have a personal culture. There's things they do and they don't do, and all of it together contributes to their success. And if you and I are going to have a better finish, it's going to be because we have a better personal culture. So listen, you find this interesting. Here we go. 70% of wealthy eat less than 300 junk food calories per day. 97% of poor people eat more than 300 junk food calories per day. 23% of the wealthy gamble 52% of poor people gamble. Can you believe that? You see the difference? It's, it's, it's contrasting the poor and the wealthy and their personal culture. 80% of wealthy are focused on accomplishing a some single goal. Only 12% of the poor do this. 76% of the wealthy exercise aerobically uh, uh, four days a week. Only 23% of the poor do this. 63% of the wealthy listen to audiobooks during commute to work versus 5% of poor people. 81% of wealthy maintain a to-do list. Only 19 of the poor do this. 63% of the wealthy parents make their children read two or more nonfiction books a month versus 3% of the poor. 80% of the wealthy make uh, birthday calls. Only 11% do. That's amazing. 80% of the wealthy people make birthday calls, but only 11% of the poor. This is interesting. 67% of the wealthy write down their goals versus 17% for the poor. 88% of the wealthy read 30 minutes or more every day for education and career reason versus 2% of the poor. 
79% of the wealthy network five hours or more each month versus 16% for poor. 67% of the wealthy watch one hour less of TV every day, 23% for the poor. 6% of the wealthy watch reality TV versus 78% of the poor. 44% of the wealthy wake up three hours before work starts versus 3% of the poor. 74% of the wealthy teach good daily success habits to their children versus 1% of the poor. 84% of the wealthy believe good habits create opportunities versus luck, 4% for the poor. 76% of the wealthy believe bad habits create detrimental luck for us, 9% for the poor. 86% of the wealthy believe in lifelong educational self-improvement versus 5% of the poor. 80% of the wealthy love to read versus 26% of the poor. Wow. I just wanted to take a moment and read that to you. I find that intriguing. It's not the Bible, but it's intriguing. Uh, that people that are successful, they have a personal culture. They live their life differently. You can say, oh, they're just lucky. No, they're not just lucky. Well, they just, you know, they just have a lot of talent and ability or they're smarter. Not necessarily. The fact is they have changed their personal culture and adapted it for a better finish. And over a period of time, there is a cumulative value of small habits. And if it's a, bad, a small bad habit, over a period of time, that small bad habit is like a cancer that will eat away your life. But on the other hand, if it's a small good habit, it accumulates to something wonderful. Small good habits in your marriage can make a great marriage. Small bad habits in your marriage, given a period of time, can destroy your marriage. We are the result of little habits that together accumulate and, and create the life that we have. So I'm taking the time today to challenge you to look at your own personal culture. Things like, are your shoes shined? Is your hair well maintained? Do you brush your teeth? What kind of wardrobe do you have? Is your car clean or is it filthy? Are you on time or are you perpetually late? Do you have your taxes in order, or is it a confusing mess every year? Little things like, do you put God first? Do you have a good routine of worship? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Nobody can make you do those things. It's a personal culture. And, and jo Joseph, he rose above all these unbelievable hardships and, and, and disadvantages because he maintained a personal culture throughout all of it. He distinguished himself from his environment with his, the standards that he set for himself. I want to encourage you to take a hard look at your own personal culture and say, you know what, I don't have to do this, but this is my line and I'm going to live by it. This is my line and I'm going to live by it. No one can make you do it, but if you can make yourself you're going to finish a lot stronger. I'm coming to a close now. Just got a couple of minutes, so I'm going to have to talk fast. There was a time in Elijah's life. Now, Elijah was maybe the greatest prophet there ever lived. Elijah and Moses, the two greatest. But um, Elijah had had a huge victory on Mount Carmel, if you recall. Called fire down of heaven. 
And then all of a sudden, the queen, the Jezebel, she turned against him and said, in 24 hours, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your life. And he virtually fled. And he went from the highest point of success to absolute, um, absolute um, failure. So anyway, he says to God, God, I'm the only one left. She's seeking my life. Just go ahead and take me out right now. I'm done. Who's at the bottom? He's ready to quit right then. But God came to him in a still, small voice and spoke to him. He said to him, I'm not through with you. I, I've got kings for you to anoint. I have prophets for you to anoint. I have a word to speak to my people, and it ain't over with yet. Get up, get out of this cave, and get on with the assignment. You're not finished yet. And he said, oh, by the way, I've got 7,000 just like you that have never bowed a knee. You don't know them, but I know them. You're not the only one. And Elijah got up. He anointed kings and he anointed prophets and he spoke the word of the Lord. And some of the greatest deeds of his life happened after that cave event when he was just ready to throw in the towel and give it all up. You see, sometimes God has a better finish for us than we have for ourselves. And places in life we go to when we feel like there's nothing else to go for and there's no reason to go on, God says, no, I'm not finished with you yet. I have some wonderful surprises. I have significance and purpose. I have something for you to do. It's not over with yet. I want to tell you, God has a better finish for us than we realize. And we may not think we've gotten very far and have done very much, but it ain't over, baby. God has something else in store for us. When you come to a place of discouragement and despair, remember it's not your time, it's God's time. And remember that at the end of Elijah's life, he ended strong, he finished great, a whirlwind came, and out of that whirlwind, a chariot swooped down, picked him up and carried him off to glory. He, didn't, he never died, one of only two men in the Bible that never died. He was ready to end it in the cave. He's like, I'm done, I'm out of here, it's over with. God said, no. I've got a more glorious ending than that. First of all, I'm never going to let you die. And secondly, I'm going to send a chariot and sweep it down to earth and take you up into glory. God has a better finish than we may realize. And I'm looking for a triumphant and a glorious finish for my life. And that's one of the things that keeps us going is when we believe that God has something better for me. God has something glorious for me. He wants my ending to be positive. He wants it to be glorious. He wants me to end in victory and not in defeat. You see, God has an ending that is victorious for all of us. But as I close today, let me tell you that you cannot finish better if you don't start out with Jesus. If you're here today and you've never given your heart to the Lord, finishing well, living better, ending it strong, receiving an eternal reward starts with giving your life to Jesus Christ. They say that you can sit in a garage, but that won't make you a car. And you can sit in church, but that won't make you a Christian. At some point, you've got to become a sacrifice and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And that where, that's where a better finish starts. It's just giving your life to Christ. If you're here today, and first of all, you've never given your life to the Lord, I want to give you that opportunity now. 
if maybe you had a moment like that in your past, but you know, you've taken a detour and kind of feel like you hadn't followed through and things happened you didn't expect and you're at a place you dearly don't want to be. What a moment this is to say, I want to get back on the right road and do the right things. What a moment this is right here. If you say, well, I'll do it later and another time. Listen, there, there's no more opportune time than now. You can't change the past. And let me tell you something. You can't touch the future. It hasn't happened yet. All you have is the moment that you're living in right now. And a better future starts by changing the moment right now. Giving your life to Christ. Getting back on track. Repenting of some hidden sin in your life. Repenting of some things you've been holding on to. Giving God things you hadn't yet given Him. And that's the key to a better finish is giving it to Christ. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. And I just know that there's someone here that's never really given their lives to Christ. And others that you need to do it again. I want to call men to repent of hidden sin. Hidden sin. I want to call women to give God things they've yet to give Him. It's total surrender. Remember, you cannot change the past. The future hasn't happened yet. All you have is this moment. If you'll pray this prayer with me, it'll change your future. I'm going to ask everyone to repeat this prayer after me. And somewhere in this prayer, I believe it'll touch you all. Let's pray this prayer together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We humbly ask you to forgive us of our sin. I don't hear you out there. We humbly ask you to forgive us of our sins. We give our lives to you. We'll be what you want us to be. We'll do what you want us to do. We'll make any sacrifice that we need to make. We ask you to come into our hearts and be the Lord of our lives. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Give me a new heart and a new life. I give myself to you now in Jesus' name. And everyone say amen. Let's stand on our feet and give the Lord a hand praise and thank Him for, our, for His goodness. you want to have a better finish in your life. Amen. Amen. I, I want to challenge you to go home this week and to take a real hard look at your own personal culture, your personal culture, and say, God, allow the Holy Spirit to help you, and He will. What do I need to do to take steps to better my personal culture? I can't change all 30 of those things at one time, but what can I do this week, right? And uh, so... Amen. I, I want to thank our bishop for being with us here today. So good to have him. Grab your seat with me really quickly, if you will. Oh, what a, what a great day it is. I, I want to take just a minute, and I want to encourage you in your giving today. Uh, before we close our service, I, I want to challenge you. Uh, you know, if, if Jesus really is the Lord of your life, uh, 